And take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, if you are visiting with us this morning, or if you have not been here in a few weeks, I will remind you that we are summarizing 850 chapters of the Bible. That's a big number, 850 chapters of the Bible. This is not the routine for how we approach uh, Sunday morning teaching. Uh, we open to a specific book, a specific chapter. And we try to expose verse by verse the Word of God in a systematic way. And we are going to do that with the book of Daniel. But to get to the book of Daniel, uh, we are attempting to lay a foundation so that we are not just running it headlong with no preparation into the book of Daniel. And we started in the book of Genesis. And this is our seventh week together doing this now. I believe there will be two more. So if you are just ready to be done with all of this summarizing, relief is on the way, okay? Be encouraged. But we have a couple more weeks, and we have made good progress. We have gone through creation and the initial stories that set up the world as we know it. Uh, We have talked about the promises that God made in Genesis chapter 3. When in the face of man and woman's failure, he promises a redeeming figure who would be born in the future, who would crush the head of the serpent Satan and make right what was made wrong in the garden. Uh, We have gone through the promise made to Abraham that in his offspring, he would be the parentage or the family of the one who would come that was promised in Genesis 3 the one who would be a blessing to all peoples, to all the peoples of the earth. We saw that promise reiterated several times to Abraham. We looked at the end of Genesis, right before the Exodus story, when Jacob, who is renamed Israel, blesses his son Judah, and in Genesis 49, promises that from Judah there will come a person, a man to whom the ruling scepter belongs, and to him all people's obedience will be owed. We have seen in the Exodus, in Exodus chapter 4, how God made it not merely an issue of freeing the Israelites from slavery, but an issue about his son. He says in Exodus 4, Israel is my son. Pharaoh, you have enslaved my firstborn son. And if you do not let him go, I will require your firstborn son. And then we have seen the promise of one who would come like Moses, uh, as Moses uh, comes to the end of his life. And our last time together, we looked at Joshua and the period of the conquest as they move into the promised land. So we have covered a lot of ground and a lot of territory And I hope it's been, at the very least, a good reminder for you. And now we turn our attention to a period of the kings. So let's just read the first seven verses of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us 
like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Now, as I said, the last time we were together, we saw that Joshua had led the children of Israel into the land that God had promised them. They had conquered that land, and they now ruled over that land, but they had not driven out the pagan, idol-worshiping people who had dwelt in that land. Instead, they grew tired of warfare. The Israelites were ready to settle down and they made peace with the Philistines and the Canaanites who remained in the land. They made peace with them by putting their cities that remained under tribute, under tax. Basically, these cities would be allowed to remain in Israel's land, the people allowed to stay and even worship their own gods, but they would pay a tax to Israel to remain in the land that Israel ruled. This is not what God had told them to do. And last week I spent a fair bit of time trying to explain the evil of these pagan gods, things that are difficult to even summarize, human sacrifice, child sacrifice, temple prostitution, all of these evils and many more in mindless worship of gods that praise the Lord we are disconnected from by name and character even if many of those sins remain in some form or another in our world. There is no God like the God of Israel. There is no God in any part of the world, going back to the beginning of the world, concerned with love and justice and righteousness like the God of Israel. There is none. There is no God like our God. I challenge you to find one concerned with love and righteousness and justice. You will not. You will not. The closest thing that anyone comes is to cultic variations of our own God, the God of Israel. There is nothing else. Joshua, who had led Israel into the promised land, he knew that if he let the pagan people remain in the land, he knew that meant their gods would remain in the land too. The worship of those gods would remain. And eventually the gods of the pagan people through marriage, through cultural assimilation, through the ebbs and flow of society and economics, he knew that those gods would come to prominence in Israel. Joshua knew this would happen. He had seen Israel turn away from God during his own lifetime multiple times. And he warned the people about this before he died. So Joshua, there's conquering of the promised land, and then he warns them. This is from Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. And this is Joshua speaking to the people. Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Don't serve the old gods of Egypt. Serve the Lord, he says, verse 15 of Joshua 24. And if it seems evil to you, to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua knew this was going to be trouble for them. Well, the people promised, resoundingly so, even to Joshua's 
denials as you're reading Joshua 24 the people says we will the people say we will serve the Lord and Joshua comes back immediately and says no you won't I mean it's a shocking thing to read you'd think he would say that's great news but he says no you won't he knows the heart of what's in man and so the people say we'll serve the Lord but sure enough they continually lapse into the worship of these false gods this is a perpetual pattern for them for the first 400 years that they are in this promised land. They wander away from God to serve these other gods. God in judgment allows their enemies to have victory over them. They cry out to God for help because of the oppression of these enemies who are having victory. Canaanites, Philistines, they cry out to God, save us, very similar to what they did in Egypt, save us God. God raises up a judge to save them, to put them back on the straight and narrow. And for the rest of that person's life, they remain faithful to the Lord. They don't serve other gods. And then that guy dies and they wander away to worship pagan gods again. This happens generation after generation after generation for 400 years. It's an unbreakable cycle. Now, if you'd like to read that uh, more about that or just a summary of it, I'd encourage you to read Judges chapter 2. I read to you from Judges chapter 2 last week, so we've read this together. We won't do it again today. But it's God in the book of Judges summarizing this very pattern. You know that, And it came to pass that when the judge was dead, they reverted and they behaved more corruptly than their fathers. It's a summary of that pattern. But for the sake of time, we'll move on this morning. Now, the book of Samuel... The book of 1 Samuel introduces us to the man, Samuel, and it gives us the story of, of, of how he was born and how he came to be in the position that he was in, all of which we will not have time to cover in these summary sermons. But Samuel is the last of the judges that God raises up to save Israel. At this point in Israel's history, they are under the oppression of the Philistines. You've probably heard of the Philistines before. <clears throat> the Philistines are very well known throughout uh, the archaeology of the Middle Eastern area. They were military seafaring people. They had settled in the area. They're related to the Phoenicians, uh, so, which, again, a very well-known people group. The Philistines had five major cities, and in those five major cities, they had five major kings. The cities were effectively city-states, each with its own ruler, and together they made up uh, the Philistine people group. Their cities were Gaza, you probably heard of, of Gaza in the modern world today. Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron. Those are five cities. You don't have to remember their names. They're gods, Baal, Astarte, Asherah, Dagon, among many other gods. These gods were worshipped the same way that all of these ancient pagan evil gods were worshipped. Ritualistic sex, temple prostitution, child sacrifice, human execution of enemies. It's, it's dark, bad stuff. You did not want to be the enemies of the Philistines, and you did not want to be under their rule. Nevertheless, that's where Israel found themselves in 1 Samuel 7, and that's when Samuel begins to preach to them. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to say this quickly, and so we'll pass over it, but the, the illusion in 1 Samuel 7 is that Samuel preached that they should turn away from these false gods for two decades. That's a long time. For two decades. It's not like Samuel just stood up one day and everybody's like, oh yeah, we should probably turn away from these false gods. Samuel was preaching a message of repentance for two decades after the return of the Ark of the Covenant. Israel basically wandered and followed after other gods. 
his message that he's preaching is summarized in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 through 9. We'll read those together. This is typically what the judges of God, who he, whom he raised up during these 400-year cycles, this is what they would preach. This is 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve Him only, that's the key word, only, and He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. It's a very, very basic message of a judge in Israel. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroths, and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mitzpah. They drew water, they poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted that day. And they said there, this is repentance, they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mitzpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. It makes sense, right? They thought Israel's gathering together, they're, they're, they're looking for a fight, they're going to rebel against our rule. So the Philistines gather their people to go up against them. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines, so the children of Israel said to Samuel, this is what they should do. By faith, call out to God. This is not how they've been handling their problems in this most recent cycle of rebellion. But they turn to Samuel, they say, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And the Philistines are defeated. They're beaten. Israel is freed. Verse 15 of the same chapter gives a short summary. Verse 15 says, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah and judged Israel in all of those places. But he always returned to Ramah for his home was there. There he judged Israel. There he built an altar to the Lord. So just like all of the other judges for the rest of his life, Israel pretty much stays on the straight and narrow. And he made a circuit. He traveled around Israel, stopping in these major cities, and he would judge Israel. And the judging mean he would deal with any big disputes among Israel. I'm sure that was involved, but he would also deal with sin. He would certainly deal with idolatry and he would call Israel to do the right thing. He did this, this was each year, year by year. He'd make the circuit and he made his, his home in Ramah so anyone that had a pressing issue, they'd come to him or call him from Ramah. And he did this all, all of his life. Um, and this sets the stage for the scripture that we read at the beginning of the sermon in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Let me just read those seven verses to you again. It says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Good decision, bad decision. No further commentary on that. But that's what he did. He said, okay, my sons will be judges like me. The firstborn was Joel. The second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes. They perverted justice. It's the opposite of what a good judge is supposed to do. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, look, you are old. Kind of blunt, but true. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us. And then here's the key, like all the nations. There's something sad when the people of God want to be like all the other nations. 
But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. It wasn't their criticism of his sons that, that were told displeased him. It was this cry for a king. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me that I should not reign over them. The problem here is not that the people wanted a king. That's not the problem in and of itself. God was always going to make Israel a kingdom. I mean, we read from Genesis 49 that, the, that Judah would be the ruling tribe and from you know, Judah would, would come the one who would, uh, you know, all the nations would, would give their obedience. The problem was not a kingdom. The problem is that before Samuel is even dead, they act like if we only had a king, the pattern of idolatry wouldn't keep happening. If we just had a perpetual kingdom, a lineage of successors, then we would stay on the straight and narrow. They would judge us effectively. We wouldn't be unfaithful to God. If we, if we, like all the other nations, had a king, a perpetual monarchy, then we would stay faithful. And you're old, you're going to die. If we had a king, then we would stop rebelling against God. We would stop losing these wars with our enemies. They wouldn't need judges They'd be righteous because a king would do a better job. A better job than God? Which is the question here. And that's why God says, they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. And indeed, they had rejected God many, 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 many times. Every time God raised up one of these judges and the judge died, the man may have died, but God was still alive and active in Israel. God still reigned in Israel. But the people would not continue following God. They only got their act together when God gave them a man. So they say, look, let's just head this problem off at the past. You're going to die soon, Samuel. And if you die and leave us without a judge, we will go back to the idols. We'll do bad stuff. Give us a king so we can follow the man. And in saying that, they're saying, we will not follow God on our own. We need a man to follow. And God says, all right, give them one. And there's a whole story behind this. He gives them a man named Saul to be their king. Now, I'm going to summarize about a hundred years really quickly here in uh, the few minutes that remain to me, because we're going to observe the Lord's Supper, and I'm not going to keep you all here till 1230, 12, you know, I'm, I'm going to summarize about a hundred years quickly here. And, 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 if you have not read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, here's a challenge for you. These are two books that are not difficult to read. It's just a story. It's not like reading the letters of Paul where you're really wrestling with, hey, what does this word mean? Or what does this uh, sound doctrine here have to do with? Or I'm not sure. I... No, you can pick up your Bible, read 1 and 2 Samuel. It reads just like a story. And if you haven't read it, you should read it. It's inter- I mean, aside from the fact that it's God's word, it's interesting. You should read First and Second Samuel, but for this morning, I, I have to summarize. Here's the summary. Saul is the first king of Israel, and he is very successful in almost every way you would want a king to be successful. Saul is very successful, but he is rejected by God. He is succeeded by David, who is the second king of Israel. He also is very successful. Their resumes are comparable. But David is accepted by God. 
So we have a contrast here of two very successful kings, the first two kings ever in Israel's history. They expand the empire. They have victory over their enemies. They rule, generally speaking, with justice. The people are not embroiled in idolatry to invoke God's judgment like they were under the period of the judges. And yet one is rejected and the other is accepted by God. The single trait that distinguishes David from Saul, the good king from the bad king, is faith. Faith. David is a man of faith and Saul is not. Neither man is perfect. But even in his failures, David responds in faith while Saul in his failures responds in fear and unbelief. Now, again, I can't tell you the full story, but I want to give you three or four examples of what I'm talking about here. First, consider Saul. Consider him when he is first made king. He is a young man. The Bible tells us a little about him. He was impressive to look at. It says he is head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the tribe of Benjamin. He's an impressive guy. Um, very commanding presence. In the chapters that follow, we find out very capable warrior which Israel needed if they're going to defeat the Philistines. Very capable warrior. Samuel goes to Saul and he tells him, you're going to be king. He anoints him. God publicly selects Saul to be king in a miraculous way that leaves no question that this is exactly what God wants. Uses Samuel to do it in front of everybody. So God tells Saul privately, you're going to be king. He anoints him and, and, you know, his family is made aware. And then very publicly, God selects him among all of Israel to be king. And as Saul is announced to be king, he is hiding among the animals that carried all of the packings to make this trip for this assembly of Israel together. He's hiding. He's afraid. That's 1 Samuel chapter 10. It doesn't matter to him that God has said he's going to be king. It doesn't matter that God has now said it to all of Israel and made it abundantly clear. He is afraid. He's no faith in this. No confidence. Terrified. Second, Saul in 1 Samuel 13 as king. The Philistines are about to attack Saul and his army. That's scary. The main reason why you, know, you have a king is to defend the nation against... And this is the first time Philistines are going to attack. It's a scary thing. Morale is low among the Israelites. Morale is low, and for good reason, honestly. You take apart what, what they should have had faith in God for, just looking at the circumstances, morale is low. He is supposed, Saul is supposed to wait for Samuel, who is functioning as, you know, as judge and even priestly roles to some degree. He's supposed to wait for Samuel to come to offer a sacrifice to God before they fight. But instead, he offers the sacrifice himself as if he, as a king, were a priest. And by the way, there's a whole other sermon or Bible study to do on this. There's only uh, one Israelite who has the right to be king and priest before God. So Saul is doing something here much more egregious than he realizes by assuming the role of king and priest, which belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He's not aware of that. He's just afraid. And he says he's afraid. He's afraid that people are going to abandon him. If you read the chapter, they're all going to leave me here. And so he rushes into this and he breaks the law of God about the sacrificial system because he's afraid of the people. It should work the other way. You should be afraid of God and obey Him. 
He's afraid of the people and obeys them. That happens again in 1 Samuel 15. He was supposed to wipe out Agag, an enemy. He doesn't do it. Samuel confronts him. Saul argues with Samuel. It's, it's childish to read it as it unfolds. If I didn't know grown men who would argue the same way, I would say it was childish. But it's childish because he's so defensive and it's so blatantly obvious he has done the wrong thing. He's not done what he was supposed to do. Until finally, in verse 24 of 1 Samuel 15, this is what he says. I have sinned because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. This is King Saul's modus operandum. Fear. More afraid of the people, more afraid of death, more afraid of consequences than the Lord God, and so more obedient to his own inclinations, to the people, than to the Lord. The last example I'll give you, and this transitions, the whole book of 1 Samuel. The Philistines threaten his armies again. And you know this story. This giant from Gath comes forward and issues a challenge. Goliath. And the challenge is that someone should come meet him in single combat. And they will settle it on the battlefield between the two of them. And making this challenge, he is taunting and mocking the feeble God of Israel. And he does this. is not a one-time thing. This is happening day after day after day. Saul is too afraid to fight Goliath. Now he is, by scriptural testimony, the most physically impressive man in Israel. Furthermore, he is the anointed king by God in Israel. He has seen God work powerfully through his hand in military conflict already, and he has been told who God is and what God will do with him, and yet he is not going out to meet Goliath. And here comes a young man with a different perspective who is not afraid to fight the Philistine, David the shepherd. And you see all of this in the dialogue between the men in just a couple of verses in 1 Samuel 17. You can turn there, I'll read it to you. Here is David the boy and Saul the king. And let's see if this is not backwards. This is, I'll just read verse 17, I'll just read verse 33 and 37 from 1 Samuel 17. Just a couple, just two verses from this back and forth. Verse 33, Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth and he a man of war from his youth. In fact, Saul didn't think anyone was able to go against him. He certainly wasn't marching out there. He wasn't going to let David go do it. He's afraid. Verse 37, here's David's summary of David's response. Moreover, David said, the Lord. Saul looks at David and says, you are not able to do this because that's how Saul operated. David says, the Lord, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. To David, he serves a God who saves. David had not been anointed in front of all of Israel. <laughs> he had not ruled or had great military victories. He'd never fought in a battle. He'd never been to war, but he had seen the deliverance of God in his life, and he heard the words of the Philistine and his mockery and his taunting of his God who saves, and David is perfectly fine 
putting his life on the Lord on the line if all that's required is faith that Yahweh saves. Here is David yelling out to Goliath, verses 45 through 47. Three verses here. Look at this. Is, I mean, this is a boy yelling to the warrior in response to his taunting. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, which were not significant things to David. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. This day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly, Philistines and Israelites who've been cowering here before this giant, then all of this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. David's God saves. And it is not abject terror for David to say, I will put my life into my God's hands. I will stand against any of God's enemies with my life in his hand because my God saves. Now, I'm sure David felt fear, okay? There is an emotional side of fear, a sense of apprehension that it's just tough to imagine anybody being immune to, but he was not ruled by fear, He was ruled by faith, not in his own natural ability, not in his own great skill. He truly could not imagine that God was going to let Goliath defeat the Israelite who stood in the Lord's name. That should have been the mighty warrior King Saul, but it's David. It's fear versus faith. David's faith is on display throughout the rest of his life, not flawlessly, but it's there fighting Philistines, waiting on God to make him king over Israel, even though he's been anointed king, not forcing the issue, but saying, look, when God is ready for me to be king, God will do it. I don't have to save myself. By the way, that sentiment being expressed as he and the people who are loyal to him are running for their lives as nomads, with no home, raising their children on the run, effectively, and he can put an end to all of it, Several times with Saul's life in his own hands, and he won't. Because Saul is God's anointed. God chose Saul for a purpose, and when God is ready to choose David, he can do it. David lives by faith. David worshiping God as he's king in the Ark of the Covenant is transported into Jerusalem, the land of the Jebusites, even knowing a man died doing this last time. Even being the king who's supposed to be regal and who's supposed to stand in strength and power before everybody. In a linen garment, dancing furiously before the Lord the entire way to Jerusalem because he has the faith that this is what God wants him to do. David is a man of faith. Even when caught in the sins of adultery and murder, he has the faith to repent and Saul never did. Why does he repent? Because... His God saves. His God delivers. The rest of Saul's life is spent in a spiraling derailment of fear ruining a person. It ruins him. There is Saul at the end of his life so afraid to die. He employs a pagan witch 
to try and conjure up a dead man to help him. That's a Hail Mary. He's just hoping for whatever, terrified, disobedient to God's law, even as the king, to the end, hoping to escape judgment, hoping to escape death. How does David face death? How do you think? God will save me. That's how David faces death. Uh, just turn with me real quick to Psalm 16. I'll show it to you. The last four verses of Psalm 16. If the first king of Israel whom God rejects faces death by trying to use witches and black magic to help him escape, here is David in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Now, here it is. Bold, underlined, highlighted, here it is. My flesh also will rest in hope. He's talking about when he dies. My flesh also will rest in hope. How do you know he's talking about when he dies? Well, verse 10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Sheol is the, the Greek equivalent, the place of the dead. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in the place of the dead. God will save him even from death. That's his hope. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Peter quotes this, by the way, speaking of the Lord Jesus and his resurrection and victory over the grave in Acts chapter 2. Folks, when you come to peace knowing that you have set the Lord before you, He is your Lord who saves and delivers. When you come to peace with that, that you are His servant, when you come to peace with the fact that the worst that this world can do to you is death, and that for you, as a child of God, death will only give way to eternal life. What does David say? In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When you make peace with that, then you have nothing left to fear. You can live by faith, and that's the heart of David. Faith. As we close here, and you know, we will close. We've summarized Saul. We've summarized David. I want to bring it back to the point of what we're doing together, because once again, this is about this is about Jesus, and one of Jesus' most famous titles, we've, we've all heard it if you've been around the Christian faith at all, is the Son of David. The Son of David. See, David is from the tribe of Judah. Saul was not. David is from the tribe of Judah, which should trigger your mind if you have been thinking through this with us over the last six weeks, the blessing of Jacob, who's given the name Israel, to his son Judah in Genesis 49. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah, from you, there's going to come kings. David is the first of those kings. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. As a lion, who will rouse him? The scepter, the ruling scepter, shall not depart from Judah or a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh is a Hebrew word. It means the one to whom it belongs. There is one coming 
to whom the ruling scepter belongs. And in verse 10 of Genesis 49, Israel tells Judah, to that person, to him shall be the obedience of the people. We know from the rest of the book of the Bible, from the beginning to the end, from the tribe of Judah will come the man promised in Genesis 3, the man promised in Genesis 12, the man promised in Genesis 15, in Genesis 17, in Genesis 49. The heir to Moses promised in the book of Exodus. David is from the tribe of Judah. David is the first king from the tribe of Judah. And Jesus, born a thousand years after David, is from the lineage of David. That's why they're going to Bethlehem. The city of David. For the census. At the birth of Christ. David did not fulfill the promise of Genesis 3. 12, 15, 17, Genesis 49. He was a great king, but not the king of kings. He certainly didn't defeat Satan and the curse of death. He is not Shiloh, the one to whom the scepter belongs. But in the offspring of David, there would be born a son who would fulfill everything. And there is God in 2 Samuel chapter 7, promising to David, just as he promised to Abraham, just as he promised to Moses, just as he promised to Jacob, just as he promised to Adam and Eve. There is God in 2 Samuel 7 promising that this man would come. This is 2 Samuel 7. I'll just read three verses to you. 12 through 14. When your days, David, God speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. Remember the promise to Abraham? In your seed, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Remember the promise made in the garden that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent? I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Please remember that as we, as we beeline to the book of Daniel in the weeks ahead. There is a king coming and there is a kingdom coming for him. I will be his father. This is the Lord speaking to David about his offspring. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Which sounds very much like Exodus 4 to me. Where the Lord tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, say to them, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse, I will kill your son. Israel is my son. And it sounds very much like John 3.16 to me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the Passover lamb. That's the lamb of Revelation 5. That's the... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That is the son he envisions in Israel when he rescues from Egypt. That is the son promised to David. That is the son promised to Abraham. This is the Shiloh who will hold the scepter forever to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In Revelation chapter 5, you see, behold, the Lion of Judah in John turns and what does he see? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You will not abandon my soul to the grave. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. And it could be that you are here this morning and you have some intellectual belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe that Jesus was 
born, that he was the son of God. You're willing to believe that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave. But you have come short of confessing Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. You have fallen short of, of Matthew, the tax collector, who is told to come follow Jesus. You, you know that you are not taking up your cross daily and following him, as Jesus says, all of my disciples must do. There is an intellectual belief, but there is not a commitment, a confession that Jesus Christ is my Lord. And if that's you today, then I'd give you Two verses from Romans 10 in closing. Romans 10 verses 8 and 9. The word is near you this morning. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart. What word? That word of faith which we preach, Paul says. What is that word of faith? That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. On what grounds? On what grounds will you be saved? Our God saves. That is what our God does. And He has given His Son to bear His wrath, His justice at the cross so that His judgment will pass over you and you can be saved. And what must you do? Get everything in your life right? No. Get up here and be baptized? No. Prove to God that you're serious right now? No. What did Matthew do? Come follow me, Jesus says. And he got up and he went. He tells Peter, James, and John, come follow me, get out of the boat and come follow me. And he got up and went. He stops Paul in his tracks on the road to Damascus. <laughs> and Paul's former life is over. Because Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead and I can be saved. If these things are in your mouth and in your heart and you don't know what to do or how to express them, please don't wait. Come forward at the end of the service. Talk to me. I'm no perfect man and I have not all the answers. But I know the answers to salvation they're not complicated. I'll help you. There are people all over the room who will help you. Confess Jesus is Lord. Believe, be saved. Let's close with a word of prayer and we'll observe the Lord's Supper. Father, I love you and um, I want to do justice to the gospel as I preach through these things, even these vast summarizing messages that are covering huge swaths of the story of redemption. And, and whether I do it well or I do it poorly, your spirit can be active either way. And if there are people here today who have not accepted the salvation that you've offered them in Jesus Christ, please, Father, let them see hope in this. Let them believe. For those of us who follow you as Lord, as we turn our attention to one of these sacraments that you've given us to observe, help us to do so with a right heart, confessing our sin, leaving it on the table, 
acknowledging that you are God and, and whatever sin we struggle with has been dealt with at the cross and by the covenant of your blood shed for us. By the covenant of Jesus, we can approach you. Not as terrified criminals trying to reconcile all of our wrongdoing, but we can approach you as sons and daughters, forgiven and redeemed. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.